This 10 Talks podcast is a production of the 10 Words Project from WUOT-FM and the University of Tennessee College of Social Work. Welcome to 10 Talks. I'm your host, Brittany Crocker, and we're about halfway through the first 10 Talks podcast season, Bedtime Stories. Um, Here at Bedtime Stories, we've been highlighting some of the most common responses from people in Knoxville's communities to our current 10 words question, what keeps you up at night? And if you were here for our third episode, Hot Bodies, you may have heard us say that in terms of health-related responses, we've had a few that reoccurred with some of the same specific wording every time. Our second most specific of these, second to menopause, which we covered in that show, was post-traumatic stress disorder. And according to the Department of Veterans Affairs, an estimated 7.8% of Americans will experience PTSD at some point in their lives, and women are twice as likely to develop the stress response as men. And it's estimated that about 3.6% of U.S. adults aged 18 to 54 have PTSD during the course of any given year. And that might not sound like very many people, but that's actually 5.2 million people in the U.S. alone. So for tonight's bedtime story, we're going to talk about some of the conditions that dictate when a body at rest doesn't always. Throughout the evening, we're also going to hear about chronic pain conditions and restless limbs. But we're going to kick off the show with our first guest, Steve Perella from the Knoxville Veterans Center. So Steve, I guess my first question might be kind of self-explanatory, but PTSD stands for post-traumatic stress disorder, but trauma seems like a pretty broad term. Are there specific experiences where PTSD is more common? Well, well, let's just start off. Uh, Trauma experiences or situations that basically overwhelm our senses. They can be very painful, distressing, and it leaves us feeling powerless. So as I say, trauma is trauma is trauma. It can happen in Afghanistan. It can happen in the home. It can happen on I-40 if you're the first person on the scene of a big traffic accident. So trauma is in the eyes of the beholder, essentially. Or maybe the eyes of the experiencer? Well, yes. Um, I, when I talk with veterans, I, say, I tell them, I say, well, you know, the, essentially an event that happens is neutral. You and I can experience the same event, witness it. I may go completely berserk where you just look and go, what? And so there's a lot that kind of goes into what do we see as a very traumatic event. And, of course, there's resiliency and all that kind of things that go with that. But essentially, uh, trauma is a, a traumatic experience can be almost anything depending on who the person is. So what you're saying then is the, the developing of a stress response then or a post-traumatic stress response doesn't so much depend on the degree of the trauma, but maybe the person? Well, it has to do with the person. Um, it has to do with, uh, as far as the degree of the trauma, how close were you to it? How close was, let's say, the person was like if you experienced something happening to somebody very close to you, the proximity, how close were you physically to the event? Um, did it happen just in a very quick time or did it happen like uh, long-term abuse over years and years? So there's just a lot of factors that kind of roll into uh, trauma and then the post-trauma that can develop. Do you have PTSD? No. Okay. You work with veterans, though. Right. Yeah, I I did, uh, well, I'm retired military. Uh, I did four tours in Afghanistan, uh, dealt with uh, a lot of guys who do have post-traumatic symptoms uh, because, you know, things happen. Mm -hmm. And most traumas you kind of get over, but sometimes... You don't, and it takes a lot longer. And what is the nature of your work with 
veterans with PTSD? Uh, the Vet Center, we do what we call readjustment counseling. Um, coming back from a war zone, and as I mentioned, I, I did four tours over in Afghanistan, and coming home, it takes quite a bit of adjusting, even more than I thought it would take, to go from where you're going 24-7 and you're going out on missions and it's a whole different world to coming home and all of a sudden uh, it's an entirely different structure. You're around people who really don't understand what you may have gone through and things that seem to be really important to them and, and irritating like standing in line in a supermarket it, sometimes it's difficult for those of us that have been over there to, to kind of take that real seriously. And it, it can be very uh, agitating mm -hmm. for a lot of people. And I would imagine combining that with someone who has PTSD, the chemical changes in the brain alone would exacerbate that, I'm sure. Yeah, PTSD, now you got to remember, is kind of on a continuum. It's, uh, you can have uh, post-traumatic stress. Uh, and then over time, you kind of get over it or talk through it. Sometimes, depending on what happened, is there can be actual organic physical changes to sections of the brain and uh, the fight-or-flight response, and those chemicals get turned on, and they won't turn off. And so you end up with a lot of the classic symptoms of hypervigilance and can't sleep at night and nightmares and those kinds of things. So... I think the media a lot of times makes it seem like PTSD is just flashbacks and um, you'll hear a lot about, um, well, movies even make it seem as though there are a lot about flashbacks. So when I talk to veterans, sometimes they'll just mention things like panic attacks or even mention just anxiety in crowded places. Um, what, what are the typical symptoms and behaviors, if typical is a word for it, for this spectrum on the post-traumatic stress um, that you were talking about. Okay, I, I kind of, when I give uh, presentations or I work with, with clients, there, there are three major clusters and I use an acronym RAW, like RAH, RAH, GO VALS, R-A-H. Uh, so the R stands for re-experiencing. That can be recurrent, intrusive uh, recollections of the event, uh, distressing dreams of the event, acting or feeling as if the event is recurring right then. Um, there are psychological, you can get psychological distress at cues. Um, let's say that uh, it's, I know it's very difficult for a lot of vets around the 4th of July because you've got a lot of booms and bangs going on. There are light, you know, sights and smells and sounds that can cause you to kind of what they call flash back to where you're there and then you have physiological uh, reactivity to cues again sight cells smells uh, you may sweaty palms racing heart panic attack types of things at these cues that remind you of that traumatic event so that's the R. The A is for avoidance and numbing. Uh, typically, people that have a degree of PTSD, they will avoid thoughts, feelings, conversations about the event. They avoid activities, places or people that will cause them to kind of think about that. Uh, a lot of times, they have the inability to recall parts of it. Uh, things happen so fast that the mind will kind of blank out the worst parts and they just have no conscious recollection of what happened. Um, along with avoidance and numbing, uh, you, you lose interest in activities that you like. Uh, you have an estrangement from people. You want to be alone. You tend to isolate. Um, a lot of people have a restricted range of affect, which means they, they don't show emotion. You're kind of numb, okay, which makes perfect sense. And, of course, then there are, uh, you know, 
maybe I'm better off dead, suicidal thoughts, because I just cannot handle this type of thing. Then uh, the third, the H, is hyperarousal, um, difficulty sleeping, irritability, or outbursts of anger. A lot of times we call that road rage. You know, if somebody cuts you off and you follow them for 25 miles, you know, pull up into their driveway, that's kind of called a clue. You know, um, hypervigilance, it's like you're on high alert. Uh, oftentimes you can tell a person been traumatized or something, they'll go into a place, where will they sit? Well, they will sit with their back against the wall where they can look at everything and they're near a door so that they can escape. Uh, they have an exaggerate. They may have an exaggerated startle response. If you're standing out and somebody drops something and it makes a bang and they just jump or dive down, so those are the three real classic clusters of symptoms for post-traumatic stress or post-traumatic stress disorder. So, are there ever um, instances in your work that you've seen other conditions being compounded with PTSD that might either make it more difficult to diagnose or treat? Well, a lot of times, uh, remember, you, you have uh, avoidance, and, and so people will self-medicate, mm -hmm. as we call it, because, you know, sometimes life is pretty raw, so what we want to do is kind of numb up. So how do we do that? Alcohol, drugs, gambling. Sometimes the people coming back uh, they dive into their work. They, anything to not be alone with your thoughts. In fact, we even had guys that would, they uh, deploy back to the U.S. Four months later, they were back. And it's like, well, what are you doing here? And so, I, mean, I, I couldn't handle it at home because there was no, nothing to distract me. As long as I'm going 24-7 in my mind, even going out and engaging in combat activities is more preferable than being alone with your thoughts when all this stuff comes rushing back and the nightmares happen. Now, some people, they, when they were over there, they did not have nightmares. It was only when they came home and the distractions are taken away then the nightmares and all these things begin to surface. We, uh, we had a show on neuroscience actually recently um, in which we talked about people who are more prone to anxiety at night because they're able to avoid things during the day. The same reason we have sitcoms was the example he gave and that they're funny, they don't make you think about anything too hard and then at night it could just be impossible to fall asleep. Um, once everything suddenly comes back and it's dark and there's nothing to distract you from the things inside your head that go bump in the night, you know. Um, so is there then a lot of um, sleep medications and things like that that are being prescribed to treat this? Or well, what treatments are available? Okay, well, typically the, the treatments would be they use... Um, selective serotonin reuptaking, basically antidepressants. Mm -hmm. That can help stabilize and get your neurotransmitters and get you calmed down a little bit. Sometimes it takes maybe heavier duty medications. And then we combine that with what we call talk therapy or psychotherapy. And we begin to talk this stuff through because ultimately uh, we have to address the avoidance piece. Yeah, that's what, I was what just is it ask. that you're avoiding at all costs thinking about? How are you able to break down those walls and talk about something that someone's so avoidant of? It, it takes a while, uh, and I've I've been in groups where uh, Vietnam veterans uh, af after a while, and they and they begin to lightly share their stories. And they begin to kind of creep up on that event. And there have been times where uh, the men will just break down and cry uh, because they're, they're remembering that they couldn't save a person's life or they felt responsible 
that somebody died or they have survivor's guilt and they break down and, and cry and just sob. And that is probably when the most interior good work is being done because the way I see it is there's always that nasty little dark thing that we do not want to think about, talk about, deal with. But unless and until we do, it's kind of got us, Mm -hmm. and we're going to be avoiding it or doing whatever we can do uh, to keep it at bay. But again, as you said, at night when there's no distractions, these things can come bubbling up or these cues. So from that point of um, where you said the most good work was being done, when someone is sometimes confronted by these things and just breaks down, what is the, the path from there? Uh, actually, it's, it's, it's them healing themselves. There really isn't much I can say. I can, I can give them some... Uh, there, there's um, prolonged exposure. There are different therapies that you can use to kind of ease somebody towards that but it has to be at their pace because again what the 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 trauma it's it's what it means to them not to me not to anybody else they have got to slowly approach that at their own pace and then when they finally can confront it pretty much head on then it begins to lose its power Uh, so do people tend to come to you of their own free will or are they recommended by other places uh well it's interesting um yes and yes i remember (laughs) i was giving a uh a talk to a vietnam veterans group and when i give a talk i kind of get down on their level and i start talking military so i'll clean this up a little bit but i remember uh one guy in the audience was going on and on about something, and I said, listen, one of these days, someone's going to jerk a knot in your tail and get you into therapy. And he stood up and he said, Steve, that's what my fourth wife said. Everybody just started laughing. And I said, well, you know, clinically, we call that a clue. It's like when, you know, your third or fourth divorce, maybe it's not them. Maybe it's you. So we get people coming in as a result of I'm tired of sleeping on the back porch or my wife is going to leave me to people that, you know, I'm, I'm tired of living this way. I'm tired of the nightmares. I am tired of jumping every time something happens. I'm, uh, I'm turning into an alcoholic because I can't cope with reality you know with with the way things are right now what kind of things might keep someone from coming to you for so long um it sounds like if someone spent that long having that many conflicts like what would make someone avoid seeking help so long you have pride like i can handle this myself uh actually for a while they can effectively cover it over you know through working and and everything else and and through they've kind of got the avoidance piece down pretty well but it doesn't work forever uh, the stigma there is it's not you know we're working on that but there is a stigma that if you have gone through something like that maybe people are kind of scared of you Mm-hmm. And they don't, you know, because we see on the news somebody, you know, does a mass shooting. Well, then they say, oh, well, they were a combat veteran, had PTSD. Well, you see, that that's not helpful. Uh, and then so people are afraid to even admit that they've got these problems for fear of what yeah. people are going to say or think. Even within the military, the stigma can be... Um pretty large. I know of one service member who, when he was diagnosed and started um, undergoing treatment, at that point for a while, they had to take away, like, his ability to, like, uh, participate in 
field exercises that involved weapons. Um, and he was a machine gunner his whole career. Mm -hmm. So that was a huge stroke to his identity as a person. Um, and it was a huge strike to also, I think, his, what he felt like was his reputation um, and his ability to keep his job and keep progressing in it. Yeah, I see. If you're investing in something like that, that can be a huge blow to your ego. And like it or not, I know that uh, like in the military, let's say they have an open door policy and all that, or in any of the first responders, now first responders like EMS, EMT, uh, firefighters, police officers, and actually the, the group that has the highest percentage of PTSD are emergency room trauma nurses. Mm -hmm. which just makes sense when you see this kind of thing day after day after day, it can really work on you. And With so the same sleep schedules as you would have in a deployed environment. Uh, that's exactly right. Only the, the difference is, and I, I always tell first responders, I admire you. I said, when we're over there and we mix it up that day, we come back, we can talk about, it, but we're all together and our families are 7,000 miles away. Here, it's like these officers get shot, you know, uh, law enforcement officer. They don't know what they're gonna face every day, but then they have to come home and be a father or a wife or a mother and, and, you know, and try to bottle that up so that it doesn't spill over into your family, which to me, that's, I just don't know how they do that a lot. Yeah, going back to the stigma and motherhood, um, I would imagine just with the stigma that people that have PTSD um, could have like violent tendencies, someone that has been diagnosed with this when, I mean, the, the statistics even say that women are more likely to become diagnosed with it than men within the United States. Like, to a woman with children, um, that would be a huge, huge stressor on whether or not they should seek help. What if someone thinks that I'm unfit to take care of my children? That's exactly right. And when they say women are twice as likely, well, typically their traumas will involve the death of a child or a physical or sexual assault, mm -hmm. that type of thing. And you know they have a ten you know some people have a tendency to suffer in silence for exactly why you're saying they don't want to take a chance on being looked at as an unfit mother for example yeah. and, with sexual and then dcs too, comes in and you lose your children and while you're trying to deal with this trauma that mm -hmm. has happened so it's that puts, a, I think, a, a mother in a really tight, tough position. Definitely. Um, so going back to, you had mentioned the, the rather humorous story about the vet who talked about his fourth divorce. Um, I, I, I read that the divorce and separation rates among people living with PTSD are also extremely high. What, what makes this so prevalent? I, I think, um, and I'm, uh, women of course also, but the stories I get a lot of are the men that uh, the wives, um, they just get tired of, like they, they can't touch their husbands when they're asleep. If you're gonna wake them up, you have to touch them on the foot because if you touch them near the shoulders, uh, they will be up with their hands around your throat. Uh, I, you know, we get those stories quite a bit. Uh, you're, they're sleeping with a partner who's just kicking and yelling and screaming with these nightmares. Uh, then the, if they have a family, the, sometimes there's uncontrolled rage. Just something just sends this person from zero to wide open. And uh, a lot of the veterans um, have have expressed regrets at how they treated their children. And some of them are just now, and these are Vietnam vets, are just now making peace with their estranged son or daughter as, as uh, the vet comes to term 
and figuring out, okay, so this is why I was like I was, and I'm looking now, boy, did I take it out on everybody. So they're now attempting to make amends and, you know, say, you know, this is what it is. This is why, and I realize that, and I am, you know, I'm so sorry. And, uh, and so there's a lot of good mending going on. But the divorce rate, women will only put up with so much. Or men. Oh, or men, that's right. I mean, we will only put up with so much. I mean, love goes a long ways, and I'm not saying that divorce is necessary, but if a person is violent or they just can't handle it or for the protection of the children, bottom line is there is a high percentage of divorce rate, uh, not just with veterans, but with, with first responders, which when you think about it, it just makes total sense. Mm-hmm. And so... One of the things that we talk about is support, the family support, the spousal support is just such a critical piece. To, and if we can educate the spouse so that they begin to understand, oh, so this is why you do these things, then it makes it easier. And then they begin to understand, and then you can have a good support system for that person which is just huge. It sounds a bit like breaking through just a vicious cycle, though, because when you talk about these behaviors and then I could only imagine, I haven't been in this situation, but then someone with, someone who then isolates themselves after an episode like this and won't talk about it or communicate it, I mean, maintaining a support system, how do you keep a support system together through that? It, It just takes time. It takes time and it takes patience, um, you, uh, both for, if the, if the person is married, both for the, uh, the person suffering and for the family members. So, it, again, it's the education. If the family can finally begin to understand, so this is why dad does what he does. This is why mom acts like she does in certain situations. It, it can be very helpful, and so kids don't blame themselves. Spouses don't blame themselves. You know, what did I say or do that set this person off? Or blame the person even. Sometimes it's about, I, I would think, just hearing what you're saying, it, it might take seeing the condition more. Yes. To a certain extent, obviously, like, Abuse and things should never be tolerated, but. Yeah, I, I, one of the things I do, we have a, uh, a PTSD self-report, and it's got 17 items, and you grade it. Uh, so it's like I have disturbing dreams. Well, never, occasionally, all the time. So you do all 17, then you score them. And depending on your score, you know, if you're way up there, it'll say you are exhibiting symptoms you might want to talk with a professional. It doesn't diagnose. I like that tool. Number one, I give it to civilians, and I say here's the signs and symptoms so that you might be able to recognize that, not just in yourself, but in people you know mm-hmm. or that kind of thing. The second thing is and to kind of create a, a community then of like that. Well, that's right. It's it's, it's education, and so then occasionally uh, a uh, veteran's been going through therapy for a while. I say, "Oh, here, go ahead, take this home." Two things: one, I want you to fill it out, and that'll kind of give you an idea of where you are. But number two, sit down with your wife or with your husband, and fill it out with them sitting right there and encourage them to ask questions. What do you mean, uh, you know, you have these disturbing images and all that? You marked it real high. Well, let me tell you what. Here's the dreams that I have. Um, I remember one vet was telling me he was seeing a civilian therapist, uh, not a veteran therapist, but... And I think the therapist, uh, she got a little exasperated after a while, and she says... Look, when was the last time you were in Vietnam? And he looked her straight in the eye and he said, last night. And it's like, 
Oh. Okay. So the education of the general public and the individual themselves goes a long way in helping destigmatize this whole thing. Because remember, uh, reaction to trauma is a human reaction. If we didn't react somehow, we would not be human. Mm-hmm. Now, we, we react to a greater or lesser degree based on our experience, but if you just are totally numb to the worst thing, then I don't know what it, I don't know. Yeah. 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 So it's a natural reaction to an unnatural event. So looking at this over the course of someone's lifetime, then is this something that people will live with this change for the rest of their lives? Or is it something that through treatment can be lessened or eradicated from their day-to-day experiences? I guess it, it depends on what it is. Now, as far as eradicated, I'm not sure if that is, is uh, the right term, that you can live with it mm-hmm. and it doesn't bother you as much or, you know, that, that's one thing. Uh, learning to live with your um, discomfort in certain situations. I think you mentioned people can't handle crowds and things. Well, they may never be completely anxiety-free in a crowd, but they can can certainly manage that anxiety and cruise around in the crowd. So it's, in that case, it's like anxiety tolerance as opposed to anxiety elimination. I spoke to a Vietnam veteran once who told me that it was about finding a new normal, um, that normalizing the things that he knew would occur in certain situations made him find a new normal and then be able to lead what he felt was a normal life that he had had before the trauma. And he had um, been a prisoner at Hanoi for six years, Mm -hmm. but he would talk about going to weddings and things like that where he had a checklist in his mind where he would look at every single door and then um, he would he would find an aisle seat with his wife and if that didn't work he would just get up and stand in the back um, and just smile you know look friendly but <laughs> right but um, he said that finding that new normal had had changed the entire or ha- had changed the way he lived with his condition from that point forward and, and I think that's I think that's right on target. It's, you know, I don't know what normal is, mm-hmm. but if it's something that you, uh, a routine or a, just a matter of being that you are now comfortable with or at least can tolerate since the event, perfect. Because you have, we have to cope in some way and hopefully we learn to cope in a positive, constructive way as opposed to coping with avoidance things, alcohol, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So you, you learn positive ways for you to understand, okay, this is the way I am right now, and here's what works best for me. And as you said, if it means can't find the right, well, then I'll just, I can stand by the back door and enjoy myself and keep my threshold of, uh, you know, anxiety low. And so, okay, this is good. Now, maybe over time it gets a little better, but you do establish a new, as he said, normal. Mm-hmm. And I think that's excellent. What, what advice or what would you say to anyone in Knoxville right now who might be, um, who might think that they're, they're living with um, any kind of post-traumatic stress response? that they themselves are. Mm-hmm. Or know someone who might who be. Who might be. What I would recommend is uh, you can go online and just type out symptoms of PTSD. And there's some VA websites, veterans websites, will give you all kinds of information. And as you read through that, if a lot of it is very familiar, like, oh my gosh, this has my name written all over it, well, then that's a clue. 
and then it's up to you to go ahead and take the next step. But probably the main thing is to educate yourself um, so that, again, you can recognize the symptoms in yourself. If you, if you are having anxiety attacks or something, look it up mm-hmm. and find out uh, what, what, what's going on because none of us have invented anything new with this. We're human beings, and we experience things a lot like everybody else does. We're not the first ones to have PTSD or anxiety or clinical depression, and we won't be the last. Mm. What would that next step be? Once you recognize that, uh, let's say, in yourself, and you're recognizing that, you know, my quality of life could be better, Mm -hmm. then the next step is strictly up to the individual. Um, I, I always look at it when a person becomes sick and tired of being sick and tired, then they'll do something about it. But we're, a lot of people are very reluctant to change. We will tolerate the worst things until we've had enough or somebody else has had enough of us. And so it's either internal motivation or external motivation that, that will move us off of dead center. But it, it, it's up to the individual. Mm-hmm. So the vet center then is open for military veterans um, who need this type of counseling uh, to talk to you about readjustment and things like that. But what what resources are there for other people who aren't necessarily in the military? Would they be able to come to the vet center, or is there somewhere else that you know uh, of? Well, um, now the vet center, we do the readjustment for combat veterans. Mm-hmm. The others will go to the um, outpatient clinic. But, again, I think what I would do if I was a civilian, mm-hmm. uh, most companies will have an EAP or they will, and there's a lot of uh, good therapists in the phone book. And once a person has determined that they have some issues that they want to work on, then start making some phone calls. And then I would encourage anybody, if you need to talk, please do. But keep in mind, after a while, if you're not getting good results, then it's like anything else. Get a second opinion. Go to another therapist. Go to somebody that you can relate to and that can relate to what you went through. Mm-hmm. I, think that's, I think that's very powerful, and that helps. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. We're going to take a break really quick, but after the break, we will be joined by Lisa Wolfenbarger, who's here to talk to us about chronic pain conditions, and living with lupus. Welcome back to 10 Talks Bedtime Stories. We're here with Lisa Wolfenbarger, who has been living with lupus for 12 years. Lupus is one of several conditions the American Academy of Pain Medicine recognizes as being related to widespread chronic pain. Because of the nature of chronic pain conditions, diagnosing specific conditions can take a long time for many patients, and misdiagnosis is unfortunately pretty common. Many chronic pain conditions stem from the nervous system, like with fibromyalgia, syringomyelia, and types of neuropathy. But lupus stems from the immune system. Is that right, Lisa? That's correct. So how long were you experiencing symptoms before you realized something was wrong? Well, I'd been experiencing symptoms for about, um, probably about 10 years before it actually got really, really bad, which was about 12 years ago. So really, I've been experiencing, you know, mild symptoms for about 20, 22 years. 
What was the breaking point that decided to get you to go to a doctor then? Well, the I, I started having many other symptoms that was going along with the chronic pain. Mm-hmm. And so my doctor finally, you know, decided that we needed to start doing some testing and see what exactly was going on. What kind of symptoms were you having? Uh, symptoms of um, inflammation, which is a big symptom of lupus, and also uh, problems with kidney function, lung function, um, things like that. So prior to, prior to having the other symptoms, did you ever see doctors for just having chronic pain? Uh, yes, the chronic pain, I used to go to a pain management doctor, which he was managing the pain, but uh, didn't really, you know, get to the root of the problem. And I was just really being treated for pain. And um, I needed to, you know, get more to the root of the problem. And pain management, is that with just medication or therapy? Or? Yes, medication and therapy. I was doing uh, physical therapy and also um, water therapy, any kind of therapies that, you know, would help the, the actual pain. And then once they started testing for different conditions, how long did it take to find out that it was lupus? Was it pretty straightforward? No, no. Um, lupus, it takes any kind of autoimmune disease. Um, it takes quite a while, probably from months to years, to really get a, a full diagnosis of uh, an autoimmune disease. So it took quite a while uh, to get that diagnosis, which was, I know I've been going through it for about six years now with the testing and all. Mm-hmm. Did they ever think that it might have been something else before they diagnosed you with lupus? Yes, yes, they actually did. They they considered fibromyalgia, and um, there's really not a lot of things that you can do for fibromyalgia besides, you know, just medication. helping the medication with medication. But also, too, um, they thought that it potentially could be MS because I had a lot of, uh, you know, chronic conditions along with the pain that was going along with MS. So actually who kind of came up with the full diagnosis is a new rheumatologist that I finally went to. I had went to just a round of doctors that just kind of threw me here and there, you know, Mm -hmm. saying, well, you probably need to go see this doctor and this doctor. And so it really got to be um, quite daunting, you know, on your... Exhausting. Yes, it is. And so um, finally my rheumatologist, the new rheumatologist that I have, I've had her for about uh, going on a year and a half now. And um, she said that she really, right, right when she saw me, she thought it was lupus. But she said, we're going to have to do some more extensive testing on you. So they did uh, some uh, antibody, auto-antibody testing and um, some other nuclear, more in-depth testing. And so they finally uh, found out. They actually had to send my blood and stuff and did the testing in Atlanta at Emory University Hospital. Oh, wow. So did mm-hmm. you did you find that you were looking at outside um medical facilities a lot yes yes they actually had sent it to cleveland clinic as well uh had to go back in after uh emory had you know looked at it and i went back in and they uh, did more blood work and then they did some testing up in cleveland at the uh, cleveland clinic up there and um, so they reconfirmed what uh, emory university hospitals had diagnosed with so how is it how did coming in terms of this diagnosis and also even just going to all these doctor appointments and things like did it affect your your work your life your routine just in general yes it 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 really affected all those i started noticing on my job that it was really affecting me and you know how you just continue to work and just don't pay much attention to it but it starts starts finally getting to you physically and emotionally and mentally And so um, it got to the point where I just wasn't able to keep up, you know, on my job. And uh, so I kept, you know, you keep trying to press on, but it just keeps getting worse and worse for you. And I kept noticing that my symptoms were getting worse and I was, you know, being, you know, drugged down a whole lot. And so I finally come to terms with, 
you know, I just couldn't make it, especially in the field that I was in. It was just really, really stressful all the time. And um, I, I just, my body wasn't able to handle that stress on a daily basis. So. Did, did most of your symptoms, did it seem like they were coming in flare-ups or were they more constant? Actually, my symptoms, since I've had it so long and not been um, treated in the proper way, clo- you know, closer to the beginning of when I started having the symptoms, uh, mine's progressed really uh, to the severe point. So I deal with it pretty severely and um, I have it pretty much every day. I have some kind of, you know, pain in my body every single day. Is there a time of day that it's that it's harder or that it's worse? Uh, morning times are usually harder for me, really, really hard. And then, you know, it takes you a while to kind of get motivated and, you know, get your medication in you and then you can, you know, start, you know, getting up and, and doing kind of daily things that, you know, it, when you didn't have something wrong with you, you really took for granted and now really think about, you know, what it is to get up, get dressed, get your body ready to go for the day. And uh, it's made a big, big difference in me. You were saying that it takes you a while to get started in the morning. Do you have trouble sleeping the night before? Yes. I've, I've actually had sleep apnea tests along with all the other testing that I've had done before. And um, I do have sleep apnea problems, but um, I don't use a machine or anything. They've just got me on a medication that helps me uh, relax at nighttime and, you know, get the more uh, deeper, better sleep. That's interesting. I've heard... Um most women, like I've heard, it's it's usually pretty rare in women to get it. Is that? Um, do you think it's a complication that's come with with the lupus? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They said that um, it's uh, come with the lupus, and it's just something that you know I've had to kind of get my body used to. I mean, I'm I'm not really, I don't think ever going to have the deep deep sleep that I used to but it's just one of those sleeps that you know you you really get used to what other kind of um, treatments and just personal coping methods Mm -hmm. have you used to sort of reorient your life now that you've come to terms with well since I've kind of you know come to terms with the diagnosis I've had to uh, slow myself down that's one thing that I have really had a hard time with because I was always a go, go, go type person. And that has been one thing that emotionally and physically I've had to really kind of get myself acclimated to just slowing down. And, um, and then also, too, you know, getting used to the medications that I'm now on. I used to be the type of person that really just didn't like medications at all. And I went from hardly no medications to several medications now. So it's really a a mental stress on you, too, knowing that you have to take that on a daily basis. Yeah. And just normalizing those kinds of things. Like, um, I mean, my dad's diabetic, and it doesn't have a whole lot to do with, uh, like, chronic pain or anything like that. But a lot of the diabetic people I know will go through these things of, like, there's just one day that they just want to, like, eat normal mm-hmm. and pretend that they're, like, the normal person. But it, I was talking with our last guest. It sounds like with a lot of these conditions, the, the key is really just normalizing and finding your new normal. Like exactly. What new. Yeah, that's exactly right. You have to find the new normal for you. You know, it's definitely not what you used to be, but it's it's not like you cannot deal with it. You know, it's it's just one of those things that is definitely uh, new. And you have to get to that point where you understand and you know now that that's your new normal. So what does your treatment plan look like for um, from here on out? Uh, pretty much. Um, they've got me on several medications that deal with trying to just cope with the symptoms on a daily basis. But also, too, I'm on a medication called Plaquenil that helps the, um, the symptoms of the lupus. You know, inflammation is a really, really bad symptom of lupus. It's probably one of the biggest symptoms of lupus. And that kind of helps the... Um, 
the inflammation and kind of keeps everything at bay, you know, really mm-hmm. not getting out of control and, and getting to that flare-up point. And that inflammation comes from the, the immune system response? Yes, yes. The immune system response is uh, the autoimmune problem is that, you know, your, your body is now attacking itself, and it's just not being able to uh, fight off things like it used to. And uh, so that's really what the problem is, is your immune system is just, you know, attacking your body, basically. Mm-hmm. And um, did your doctor ever say whether or not it's hereditary or how, how you developed it? Well, uh, you know, I've, I've read a lot of things that, you know, it could definitely be hereditary. Uh, just in my case, uh, we don't have anybody really on either side that's had lupus before, which has been, you know, kind of strange to me. You know, I would have thought that somewhere down the lineage, you know, I would have heard of somebody that would have had, you know, something similar to it. But um, nobody so far that we can think of, you know, has had it before. Um, well, is there anything that you would say to any of the listeners that might be struggling with something like this right now or in that diagnosis period or things? Um, Yes. I guess what I would say to anybody is just try your best to get a really, really good doctor and find the doctor that is going to help you. If you're not satisfied with some of the results that you're getting from, from doctors, then move on. Because as time goes on, it, I mean, it goes from months to years, and you don't really want to let it go, you know, basically as far as I've let it go. Uh, you want to get, you know, a diagnosis as quickly as possible, especially with something like lupus, because it does take a toll on your body if you hadn't had the right diagnosis. And um, I would just suggest to people that uh, once you do find out that you've got an autoimmune disease or a chronic pain condition, um, just try your best to um, get that in your mind that you're not going to be the same person. And you do have to find your new normal. It's not that you're, um, you know, destined to not be able to get out of bed any longer or be an invalid or anything like that. You're not. You you do need to have a lot more willpower to kind of motivate yourself to get up and do. But um, you can do it. You know, it just it takes a lot more effort to do it, but you can do it. And that's what I would suggest to people. It's good advice, I think, for, for anyone in any situation, not mm-hmm. necessarily just chronic pain. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brittany. Thank you for joining us. Uh, We're going to take another break, and when we come back, we'll be joined by Dr. Kevin Martinovich, who is going to talk to us about restless legs to continue our conversation on when a body at rest doesn't always. Welcome back to 10 Talks, one of The more outlying responses we received from you about what keeps you up at night was restless leg syndrome. Now, a lot of people have heard about restless legs, but usually only on commercials. And for people who don't suffer from the condition, it's hard to have a context for what the disorder really is. But according to the Florida Hospital Medical Center, one in 10 people within the U.S. have this sleep disorder to some extent. So we're here with Dr. Kevin Martinovich the medical director at the Sleep Disorder Center at the University of Tennessee and the division chief of sleep medicine at the UT Medical Center. And he's going to talk to us a little bit about restless leg syndrome. So I guess first and most generally, what what is restless leg syndrome? So we get uh, we get that asked a lot. Um, restless legs um, is considered a neurologic problem. Uh, it generally is a problem where people have a very difficult time getting comfortable sleeping. And it generally affects the legs, although it can affect the arms. Um, It really comprises a number of symptoms. Um, Typically, we think of five important things. Uh, One is the urge to have to move. Uh, Most of the time, again, that can bother the legs or the arms. Sometimes it's just a general feeling of I've got to get up and move around. Uh, The second is that it tends to feel worse when you're at rest. So if you're sitting for prolonged periods of time or laying down to take a nap or laying down at night to sleep, it'll tend to be more of a problem. Uh, it generally goes away or feels a lot better when people get up and start moving around. Um, it generally is more of a problem in the evening time. 
Um, we're not sure why that occurs, but it generally is more of a problem when people, again, are trying to sleep. Um, and the other issue is there can't be other reasons to explain those problems, such as peripheral vascular disease or neuropathy or other types of health problems that might mimic those types of symptoms. So it's not so much an involuntary like movement or anything? So that can be part of the problem. So there are really two sort of clinically distinct issues. One is restless legs, and that's that uncomfortable feeling that we just described. There is something called periodic leg movements or periodic limb movements that can be part of restless legs. It's frequently part of that disorder where people will, while they're sleeping, move their arms and legs about involuntarily. It can happen during the day. So sometimes when people are just sitting in a chair, they may have an arm twitch or a leg twitch that can be part of that phenomenon while they're awake. So the, the symptoms, though, of the restlessness is certainly involuntary. And the movements that occur sometimes are voluntary because they're trying to make those symptoms go away so they can get comfortable. But sometimes they will have sort of some uncontrollable, unexpected movements. I mean, I would just imagine this is exhausting. And when I think about, I mean, times that I've been exhausted, you know, there's, there's usually a point that I'm just ready to crash. And it doesn't matter if I'm in a comfortable bed or a comfortable chair. Um, I could be in the most awkward position ever, and I will just fall asleep. Is that how, how does it keep people awake when the mind is ready to fall asleep, but the legs aren't? Can't they just kind of get past that? So unless you've experienced it, it's really hard to appreciate. And, and there are certainly some people that, if they're really sleepy enough, can fall asleep. Um, I myself get it um, occasionally, fortunately not very often. And I can tell you when I have those symptoms, uh, it's almost impossible for me to fall asleep and I have to get up and move around for a little while. And usually Even it goes away. Even if you're exhausted. Even if you're exhausted because the symptoms are just so uncomfortable that you just can't put them away. And you really sometimes have to be exhausted. And the problem is that for some people, this will cause really severe insomnia. Um, if they have the leg movements with this in the middle of the night, those leg movements can be sleep disruptive enough that during the day, patients are going to complain of being tired as well. So it's not just this, I can't get to sleep. It's you know, work can be a problem. Sitting at a computer, getting on a plane, getting on a car ride for some patients with this can be so disturbing that they can't do those things without having to stop the car or get up in the plane and walk the aisles or get up in the middle of the night and walk the house. I've had patients that were so severe that they came to me in tears with severe depression, ready to, you know, quote unquote, you know, jump off of a bridge because they were just so miserable with their symptoms. Yeah, we, we actually had a sleep scientist in here uh, or a neuroscientist talking about how a lot of neuropsychiatric conditions like depression can be attributed to a lack of sleep. Oh, absolutely. We, if you ask somebody like me, why do we sleep? I'm going to give you a roundabout answer because, well, quite frankly, we don't really fully know, but we think we know. We, we know that um, you need good sleep for memory. Uh, we need good sleep for our immune system. We need good sleep so we can function during the day and be wide awake. Um, it restores our body. We, we know it's probably restorative. Um, it probably helps our mood. So when you have whatever sleep problem you may have, whether it's restless legs or a myriad of other sleep problems that are out there, it can start to have effects on family life. It can have effects at your work. It can have effects on your mood and a variety of other things. Are, are the sensations then like enough to wake someone out of deep sleep? Um, occasionally, you know, most of the time there will be problems with getting to sleep. Uh, if they wake up in the middle of the night, they may have trouble getting back to sleep. Uh, if they have the leg movements, that can certainly wake them up and disrupt their sleep. So again, it'll depend on the individual and the type of symptoms they're having. The, the issue with this is that patients can describe any number of symptoms, whether it's you know, creepy crawlies or worm-like symptoms or tension or discomfort or pain or even, uh, I can't describe it, doctor. I, I can't even tell you what this is like. All I know is that if I don't keep moving around, I'm not going to be comfortable. Is, is it a lifetime condition? Um, it often will be. Um, for some, it'll start very early. Some will start later in life. We don't fully understand why patients get this. There are some thoughts. Um, we know that iron metabolism may play a role in this. So there are some patients that uh, will we'll check their iron levels. They'll be very low. We replace their iron and they'll be much better. Uh, we know that dopamine in the brain may play a role with this. We don't completely understand why. Um, we know that medications can create this problem or add to it. 
Um, so for some patients, you can alleviate the symptoms by simple modification in diet or modification in medicines or fixing their iron levels. In other patients, they often uh, will need medications to treat this. Some of them, if it's fairly mild, can get away with basic things like leg stretching and exercise and some non-medication approaches. So again, it'll depend on the patient and the severity of their symptoms as to how you have to go with this. So are there, what specific medications do you use to treat um, treat restless leg syndrome? Is it just all sedatives or sleep medicines? So some of this will depend on the clinician uh, and the patient, their age, other medications they may be on, et cetera. But there are generally several classes of medicines that we'll look at. Uh, one of them are these medicines we call dopamine agonists. These are medicines that affect dopamine pathways in the body. Uh, medicines uh, such as what's called pramipexol or rapinerol, which affect these pathways, are often considered first-line therapies. Uh, other medicines such as gabapentin, which work through a, a calcium binding system, uh, can be very beneficial as well. Uh, for more severe patients, we may talk about uh, benzodiazepine-type medicines, Valium-like medicines, clonazepam, etc. Um, on occasions, and these are pretty uncommon, but on occasions we'll even have to use narcotics uh, to treat that. Uh, you know, here in the U.S., of course, there's this big voodoo about narcotics, and yes, it's a problem, um, and we have to be careful with that, but it may be the absolute right drug for certain patients if they've been screened properly, evaluated properly. And then there's other medicines people will try. Vitamin E supplements occasionally will help, and there's a variety of other sort of third-line medications that we'll uh, look at. When you say narcotics, do you mean like Schedule One prescription drugs, or do you mean like marijuana? Well, so so so, so marijuana is, is certainly a very different class of of, of drug. Uh, but we'll, you know, sometimes we'll use codeine, um, we'll use uh, hydrocodone. Um, on rare occasions, we may even use some methadone. Um, it just again depends on the patient. Uh, sometimes patients won't respond to one class of a narcotic, but may respond to another just because of the differences in how those medicines affect receptors. And you mentioned stretching. What other kind of lifestyle changes can, can help someone who's having this problem? Um, certainly watching caffeine intake. Caffeine, we know, increases restless leg symptoms. Uh, antihistamines, particularly over-the-counter ones like Benadryl, can worsen this. Smoking alcohol are all things that contribute. So, you know, good diets, exercising, uh, being careful about uh, the caffeine and smoking alcohol intake are certainly some things that can be uh, beneficial. So about the same as with most with most medical conditions, you know, lead a healthy lifestyle, try to get, well, maybe not try to get enough sleep because that seems like it might be a compounding instruction or <laughs> confounding instruction. But um, yeah, you're just typical diet, exercise, and don't put too many stimulants and depressants in your body. Healthy living goes, goes a long way. Again, for some of these problems, they can do all the things they're supposed to and still have problems. Uh, and again, sometimes it's medication, sometimes just changing timing of certain medicines like antidepressants, which we know can worsen restless leg symptoms, um, and some other medicines that may worsen those things that um, either if they can get off those medicines or have the timing of those medicines change can make a big difference. When, when you look at kind of overall how many people are coming into uh, the sleep clinic, how much of them would you, how much of this is, would you say is made up by um, restless leg syndrome compared to sleep apnea and other conditions? Uh, it's probably not quite as common. Uh, sleep apnea is an extremely uh, common problem. Insomnia is probably one of the more common things that we'll see in a sleep clinic. Um, restless legs, again, is going to depend on the severity. Um, if you look at the incidence of restless legs as a whole, about... Uh, 2%, 3% of the population will have it, although that will depend on the population you're studying. You may see it as up as high as 10%. Um, the percentage of those patients that have severe enough symptoms that they feel like they're having sleep disruption or need intervention is probably a bit less than that. Um, of course, in a sleep clinic, those numbers will be a bit higher because we're getting referred those type of patients versus the general population. But it's certainly a very common thing that we'll see in our clinics. So people don't come to you first for a diagnosis of sleep, uh, of restless leg syndrome. They'll, they'll have been to other doctors at that point. It depends. Um, I have had patients show to me because they were referred for insomnia, uh, and no one had asked the questions, and it was very clear that the insomnia was purely an issue of restless legs or that they had sleep apnea, and their restless leg symptoms were really a relationship to their sleep apnea. Uh, sometimes they've been specifically sent because they recently were diagnosed, and the clinician that was seeing them wanted me to manage it. 
Some of them come to me because they've already been on multiple medicines and have seen other people and were looking for other alternatives because they were still having problems. And does restless leg syndrome only apply to a person's legs or can they be experiencing this in other limbs? Well, they can absolutely, it can affect their arms, it can affect their whole body. I will occasionally have patients that come to me and they're not complaining of restlessness in the legs or the arms. What they're saying is, I just can't get comfortable. And it'll be their entire body. They just say, I just, I'm not having a symptom per se, doc. I just have to move around. Um, and so that can be an atypical presentation. Now that could represent a whole host of other problems, but you need to be attuned to the possibility that patients won't come just with a leg complaint. It can be in one side or the other. It can be bilateral. It can be the whole body on occasion. So you really have to keep an eye for all those different types of presentations. It seems like that would make diagnosing it even harder. It can, but it's about listening to the patient. Um, you know, the old notion is if you listen to your patient, they will frequently tell you what's wrong. You just have to listen and ask them the right questions. How many, what's the process then of diagnosing it? Is there a lot that you have to rule out um, to, to be sure that it's restless legs and not, you know, like a, a, you mentioned neuropathic conditions? So usually a good history is going to lead you whether you have to worry about other things. The description of the symptoms may help you lead you as to whether you have to worry about other things. Um, so generally, um, if, they've get, if a patient gives a very, very good history, it's fairly straightforward. Uh, if there's doubts, then we have to start wondering about sleep apnea. A good exam may help uh, elucidate whether there's neuropathy. There's other tests that you can do. Um, if there's a concern, some patients might need some vitamin levels, check B12 levels, things like that to make sure we're not missing some of those things. But oftentimes, the workup isn't real long. It's often some questions. Uh, we'll often have them fill out the International Restless Leg uh, Severity Scale. That usually is kind of helpful to kind of see if that's really what's going on. Um, and then again, just you know, looking at their medications, et cetera. So oftentimes, good exam, good history, uh, some other basic questions usually gets you in the right direction. And would you have tips for anyone that's currently experiencing these symptoms and it maybe either has seen a doctor um, or, or has not yet and isn't really sure? So I, I, lots of options. Um, you know, again, I think if you're still concerned, um, you gotta re-talk to your doctor. Um, if you feel like you're still having problems, um, there are certainly plenty of sleep centers in town. There are lots of good sleep docs in this town. Um, there are websites that can be very helpful. The uh, restlesslegs.org website certainly has lots of good information. Uh, our website, uh, utsleepdisorders.org, uh, uh, sleep, UT certainly has some uh, good information as well. It's, it's ask, ask, ask. Ask the questions. If you feel like you're not doing well, you gotta talk to your doctor, and then you know, maybe come see somebody like me and get some more help. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you enjoyed your bedtime story. Be sure to tune into 10 Talks next week for The Joy of Work, where we'll talk about work-related anxiety and taking your job to bed with you. And remember, you can always find out more information about the 10 Words Project on our website, wuot.org, or you can follow us on Twitter at 10 Words with two N's where we'll publish some of your anonymous responses to our current question every day. We also keep a running archive on Instagram where you can see every single one of our responses, the funny, the bizarre, the thought-provoking, the serious, all of them. A special thanks to Steve Perella, Lisa Wolfenbarger, and Dr. Kevin Martinovich for coming on the show tonight. And a big thanks to everyone on the 10 Words team and all the good people over at the University of Tennessee College of Social Music for Bedtime Stories is by Todd Steed and the Sons of Fear. That's P-H-E-R-E. If you like it, you can hear a whole lot more of it on Bandcamp. 